Welcome to the Chasing Presence podcast, co-hosted by Santiago and Mike. This is a space where we share our insights for how to live a more spiritually aligned life. Join us on our journey to expand consciousness, live with purpose, and awaken to our true nature. Anthony Camargo is an international award-winning jewelry designer. In his 25-year career, he transcended boundaries in jewelry design, enabling him to attain the heights of the fashion and jewelry industries. Winning numerous awards, he received the prestigious CFDA Council of Fashion Designers of America Accessories Design, the Fashion Guild International Rising Star Award, and one of the 10 finalists in the Vogue Fashion Fund. Having reached the highest peaks in the fashion and jewelry industry, Anthony decided it was time to explore the world in different cultures, which led him to living in Thailand for five years, where he began a journey of self-discovery and spiritual awakening. While on an island sabbatical, an unexpected encounter led him to a relationship that would change his life forever and the lives of thousands around the world. Missing being famous, he returned to the States with a mission to reclaim his designer stardom. Once again, he positioned himself at the top of his field. However, he quickly realized that the recent life experiences of being away changed his perspective of what, tru- what he truly desired. He no longer was content with the idea of fame, and the illusion opened the door to a new chapter that included health and fitness. Anthony, welcome to the show today. Oh, thank you. What a nice introduction. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, did I, did definitely. I write, did I write that? Did I write that? <laughs> I, think, I think you might have. Um, so there's there's multiple ways we can kind of start this conversation, but I, I guess where I'd like to begin is out of curiosity, if you could kind of go into before you had these spiritual experiences, you were in this fashion industry and jewelry industry. Can you go in? And I remember you talking to me on the call before that you kind of had this epiphany where you eventually realized that, you know, this this isn't fulfilling. This doesn't really matter as much as you thought it did. It was very ego driven. Can you kind of go back to before you started on the spiritual path and what your life was like and how that progressed? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, I, th- I think I'll backtrack just a little bit further on that and, and say that uh, growing up in, uh, in, in a household where we were uh, economically uh, uh, underprivileged, um, our, our icons growing up and my icons growing up were what we saw on television. So, um, you know, we did, I didn't live in an environment where education was a priority uh, or spirituality, um, anything of that nature. So my uh, exposure was basically what I saw on television. So I grew up thinking that that's how you became something, is that if you became famous, and famous to me meant being a celebrity of some sort, um, and that became my mission in life was to become famous. And I went down the path of becoming a model, and and that was short-lived, um, and I eventually ended up in the fashion world. Um, <clears throat> Achieving um, that, achieving status of fame became my sole purpose. I thought that having money and having name recognition was going to be the be all end all. And I worked at it um, for many, many years to attain that place, that so called place. <clears throat> and, um, <clears throat> you know, I won't, I won't, ki- I won't kid you. There was there was a there was a, a a lovely part of it. It was a fun ride, um, and when you when you don't have something, 
when you are working to achieve it is part of the process of um, finding yourself, I guess I would say. And I thought that when I re- if I ever did reach that level of success, that the world would be right, that everything would be perfect. And what I wasn't prepared for was how imperfect it actually was. Um, how all of how to, out of all the hard work that I put into it, when I got to that level of success, um, all of a sudden it was real. And the reality hit. And I was like, really? Is this is this it? Because now the, the mystique was gone. Um, so hitting that spot was kind of my, it was kind of like hitting a wall, hitting a, a brick wall going 80 miles an hour in a car. It was like, boom. And I remember the day that for me, everything changed so dramatically. Um, I There were a couple of different scenarios or different, a couple of instances, but one was I had come in, I'd come back from New York from a, a uh, big award ceremony where I'd won some sort of an award and I was being honored and it was the accolades and, oh my God, you're amazing and you're genius and all of that stuff. And I came back to Austin and I went to my house and my partner and I were split up at that time. We were, or we were already split up as a couple um, and we were also business partners. And I remember getting to my, my house that night and I had this beautiful award in my hands and I remember sitting on the floor and crying. And I remember thinking, I have nobody. I have nobody to call, to even talk to. And that was really my wake-up call. So that opened up the door for me to really realize that this idea that I had built my life around, this idea of that fame and fortune and, and all of that, celebrity was going to be the be all end all and it was absolutely the worst feeling that i ever had that i'd ever had so (laughs) wow that's that's crazy and i think what essentially happened is you built up an idea of how thing of how happiness or success looked like in your head based off of the experiences that you had when you were a child watching tv so you you kept up building this idea, and then when you finally achieved it with you know obviously all of your hard work, reality kind of like set in. The reality was completely different than that idea in your head. So your ego kind of basically got broke down because he, here's this idea, here's reality. It's completely different. So you, in a sense, had a little bit of an identity crisis in that moment, an ego death in a sense because. As as soon as you thought that you were going to achieve everything of your wildest dreams, it just it didn't feel how you built it up in your head. And I think it's um uh you've heard of uh Jim Carrey's um um his 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 initial rise to fame and what happened afterwards. He he basically said, you know, I was I was living in my car, I was completely broke, and then I. It wrote myself a check for $10 million. And a year later, he he got the mask. He got the uh, Dumb and Dumber. And 
basically had $10 million in his bank. And like you said, you know, initially it was, it was awesome. You know, the ride was great. And then two to three months later, when that kind of like honeymoon phase of success dies down and that initial high goes away, you're, you're left with this, you know, Oh, how can I recreate this almost? And it's like, you can't because you got there and now you come back to, you know, reality, which is just like, it's not this idea in your head. It's just, this is just what it is. And as soon as that happens, it's, you, you become depressed and, he, and Jim Carrey becomes depressed. This is what happens with a lot of rock stars who uh, achieve success. You know, they try to recreate the high. They can't because that initial first, like reaching success is like the best thing that's ever happened. And it's like almost impossible to recreate it. So they resort to drugs, try to like basically recreate the high. And then that's when everything goes downhill. So what it sounds like, just just from hearing all these stories and yours is that ultimately relationships and you know a strong spiritual connection with yourself and like people around you are more important than anything else well you know you're absolutely right and i think that one of the things that happened in that process for me was that you know i had sur- i had surrounded myself with so many people i had 60 employees here in austin i had publicists in la and new york and i had celebrity people that I knew that were my friends and blah, blah, blah. And you know what I realized is that not one of them were actually my friend, that they were all basically wanting something. And whether it be a celebrity who wanted free jewelry to wear, or it was employees that needed a paycheck or publicists that needed me to put on the song and dance so that they could get their accolades. It was all this I thought, I really believed that all these people loved me so much. <laughs> and the reality was they were, they were all dependent upon me. They were all dependent upon my success to fuel their lifestyles. And so when you realize that, um, when I realized that, I was like, holy crap, I, have, I had no friends. I had absolutely no friends. I had put myself in a bubble of Everybody telling me how amazing I was. What a great place to be. What a great place to be when you are just, nobody says no to you. Everybody says yes to you. They will indulge you in every possible way, so much so that they will even elicit or feed your bad behavior because they don't want you to fall off the thing that is created that allows them to live the lifestyle that they're living. That makes any sense. So yeah, you see that a lot with people in power in, in positions of power or status. They tend to surround themselves with people who feel like they need to feed their ego and people like they feel like they always need to say yes and give positive feedback. And so one of the downsides of being in this position where you're kind of up in a castle, right, so to speak, is the people around you, you're not getting honest feedback from people because everyone feels obligated to either be nice to you or they have an ulterior motive to be nice to you because they want something from you. And so you're not establishing these very um, strong, authentic, real connections with people. And so maybe your ego is being fed, which seems to be the case of what happened with you, but you're not really being nourished at a soul level. And eventually you reached a point where you had this realization that, hey, these aren't real friends. These aren't people who actually care about me. These aren't people who I can actually confide in and share, you know, uh, meaningful experiences with. So after you had this, this kind of breakdown of the ego and you realized all of these things about, you know, the, 
the illusion of what fame and fortune can give you, what, what next? Where, where did you go from there? Um, you know, I think that for me, the reality hit, so it, it hit me very hard. And so what did I do? I turned to substance. Um, that became my way of maintaining and being the, the dancing monkey, so to speak, because I had to travel all over the world and I had to make public, you know, personal appearances and I had to at a TV show on QVC and everybody you know, wanted me to do this stuff. And I knew that I had all these people that were dependent upon me. And so I fueled my, uh, I fueled myself with, I started with cocaine. I started doing cocaine um, on a day, it led very quickly to doing cocaine on a daily basis. And um, I um, stayed with that for probably a good year. I was within in that space for about a year and I went to a party in New York and at this uh, particular party and it was one of those parties where everybody was famous and I was there and I had won another an award and blah 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 and I remember I got to this party and I walked in and I beelined for the upstairs roof because I'd been to this house before and it was somebody in the in the designer world um and I knew there was a bathroom on the roof. And I went up to, if I went up to the bathroom, I could go up there and get myself coked out. And then I could deal with the, uh, the, the event that was happening. Well, I did. I went upstairs and I did, I don't know how much cocaine, uh, drank some drinks because it was a bar up there. And I was buzzed enough to walk downstairs. And I walked into a conversation that my partner was having with this other famous designer. And it just sounded like such bullshit. I was like, really? Is this what we talk about? We talk about how amazing we are. And they were basically backslapping each other and telling each other that they were just basically the most brilliant things that, that surfaced on the planet. And I leaned in and I just said, in a very matter of fact way, I said, you guys, we are not curing cancer. We fucking make pretties. And we get celebrated for that. And it was at that moment that the light bulb went off. And I knew at that moment that it was, that I was done. I was done in that space because for a couple of reasons, um, I didn't like the environment. I didn't like the people I was surrounded with. And I also knew that I was no longer an asset for my company. <laughs> if, that, if that was going to be my philosophy about it, if I was not going to play the game like everybody else was playing the game, that I was not an asset. And I knew at that moment that it was like, it was time to make a decision. And literally I got on a plane um, the next day, flew back to Austin, Texas, had a meeting with my partner on Monday morning um, and was in his office and there was a globe there. And I said, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I want to retire this brand. And I said, I just want to go somewhere where nobody knows me and nobody fucking cares. And I spun the globe, I closed my eyes, and I hit my finger on it, and I hit Bangkok. <laughs> and in a month's time, I closed down the business, and I was on a plane with a one-way ticket to Bangkok to start this new chapter. And that was the beginning. That is, that is crazy. Did you, I, it, it seems like that experience, you know, 
where you kind of told them that very straightforwardly, like that was a very pivotal, pivotal moment and very important for you to just have that, that clean break, so to speak, from that life that you were living. And after that, you kind of just decided to very quickly go back to Austin and then, you know, spun the globe, chose a, chose a place to travel to. Did you have any fear or reservations when doing this? Or did you feel almost like a freedom when you decided to make that choice? <clears throat> um, I... I think I, I think I was probably scared in my heart of hearts, but it, that fear was so minuscule into where I knew I needed to go. I could overcome the fear. I could go into any situation. Listen, I had just done what I had done. I'd built myself into this, this thing. I could do anything. I could do anything that I chose to do if I chose to do it. And to choose to do something that is so daring and to walk away from everything that you know, to walk away from everything that you've worked for 20 years for, to build up, to walk away and go, I want to go somewhere where nobody cares, is a very scary, but one of the most powerful things that I know that I ever did. Yeah, that that definitely takes a lot of courage. and. Um... Would you say that that to some extent, like pain was a bit of the motivator there? Like, as I, I always think to myself, pain is a very good motivator. We don't like to experience pain, right? We don't like to experience depression or fear or anxiety, but oftentimes that is the thing that's going to make you make a big change in your life. Like if you don't you know, have that. You know, I think you're, I think that there's part of that, but I also think from a very fundamental perspective and a very basic perspective, I had reached a point in my career where I had reached this level of, I was untouchable. I was the best and one of the best in the world at what I did. And once you get there, then what? And I knew that if I was going to stay there, that I was going to have to fight forever to stay in that position. I had done something by creating this brand that I created that nobody could touch because it was so unique and it was so individual that I had that it allowed me to get to that place but once you get there all of a sudden you now know if you're going to live in this you're going to have to fight for that position forever you're now going to have to go out there and fight for that and that didn't sound fun to me that didn't sound joyous and it didn't sound like it was something that I could honestly do without fueling it with more drugs and i really didn't want to do that yeah that's that's fascinating um so you fly over to to bangkok and you're just kind of starting from scratch in a sense you know not completely but in a way you are starting kind of your life over um at least temporarily and so well, what does that journey look like for you? Is that the point at which you have a spiritual awakening or does it not come until sometime after that? No, it doesn't come for sometime after that because um, I had been, I had actually, interestingly enough, because I, I hit Bangkok, I had actually been traveling to Bangkok for a couple of years for business already. So I had uh, people that I actually knew there that were a part of my industry. They were like the factories that I worked with. So, but very different relationships from the United States. So very, a very different world where, you know, it was in Asia and it was not, who cared? They didn't really care. They were just 
doing what they did for a job. But I made friends with um, a, a couple that were uh, owned one of the factories. They were a lovely uh, younger couple that had four kids and they ran the, the business. It was a family business. And they had about 5,000 employees at this factory. It was this huge organization. And whenever I would go uh, and work there, what I loved about them was that they would always invite me into their home. And they didn't treat me like I was anything special. I was just this guy that was there working and I would sit down and I would have dinner with them and the kids and they didn't care that I was this this guy. They were just like, oh, this guy's kind of fun. Well, in that relationship that I built with them, um, I did reconnect with them when I went back to, to, to Thailand, when I went to Thailand. And one day I was with um, the gentleman, the, the guy that, that uh, was the head of the family. And we were in the car driving and he was talking to me about his Buddhism journey. Um, and he was talking about how he was preparing to go away as he did every year for a month to be in silence. And he would do this every year. He would go shave his head, go live on a, in a monastery away from his family and not speak for an entire month. And that sounded really fascinating to me. Now, did I want to go do that? It was a part of me that said, God, that would be really cool to do. But I love to talk too much. So I didn't think that was going to work very well. But I remember I asked him, I asked him a question and I said, is there a book that I can pick up where I can learn about Buddhism? <laughs> and that was my very Western approach to it. And um, he looked at me and he kind of laughed. He said, you're approaching it like a Westerner, he said. He goes, it doesn't work that way. He said, Buddhism is a way of life. It is the way that I get up every day and how I view the world every day. It's not something that you can just attain from a book. And that was really interesting to me. That was very interesting. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, I get up every day and I do the best that I can possibly do in everything that I do. And that simple explanation was profound to me. And it took me months to wrap my head around that very simple statement, because I believed, like anything, if you were going to go into some spiritual journey or you had to study religion, you had to study all of these things, and he said it so simply, it is just a way of life. And that moment, or that those words stuck in my head. It didn't mean that I went into to go, I didn't go become Buddhist, um, and I still don't claim to be Buddhist today. I claim that I am impacted by the um, by the the teachings and the philosophy of Buddhism. It makes the most sense to me out of all things out there. But I don't claim that. Oh my gosh, now I'm a Buddhist. I don't do that. Um, but I loved what he said, and it made sense to me. Um, and I'm sorry, I just I kind of diverted here because I want to get back to your question. Um, it took me a while. It took me a while to get to that point of understanding um, that spirituality could play a big, important role in my life. Now, it didn't happen because I went to, to a temple or anything like that. It happened for me because I had a chance encounter on an island where I met 
a, a being that would change the rest of my life that started my journey. So please tell us about this being <laughs> because yeah, I'm, I have a lot of respect for you after, after reading the, the article that was written about you in respect uh, to this being. So um, please well, tell. Um, I am, um, I was uh, also, while I was in Thailand, I actually did get involved with, um, a, with, with the very elite uh, crowd of Thailand. It's called high, it's called high, so high society. And I just happened to one day run into a woman who was wearing a pair of my earrings. Um, and we had a conversation. And the next thing I know, I was invited to go to a party. And then the party led to opening all these doors into this society. Um, so I started living um, a lifestyle that was very similar to the lifestyle that I was living in the United States. So, but it wasn't based upon me, whereas in the United States, it was always based around me and being me believing my own press and being this and that, and you're amazing and you're genius. There, I was living the same kind of lifestyle, but it had nothing to do with me. I was just happened to be tagging along, so to speak. And this woman happened to own resorts all over uh, the uh, islands in Thailand. And one day she asked me to go with her to an island called Kosamed because she wanted to go check on one of her resorts. So we went, we, we went there and I was just doing my thing. Um, she was doing her business. And every morning I would get up and I would go jogging on the beach at 5 a.m. And to cut, to cut to the story, to, to cut it close and just so I don't go into all the details. Um, one morning as I was jogging, I found a little dog that was, um, uh, she was basically dying. And um, in my Western approach, again, I say the Western approach because in Thailand, they don't really care about this, what they call soy dogs on the street. Dogs that are, you know, starving or, you know, are hurt or whatever. Nobody really cares. And for me, when I saw this little dog, I felt like I needed to step in and do something. And that was the being that I met was this little dog that um, turned out to be crippled. And she didn't have the ability to use her back legs. I didn't know this at the moment. I just knew that she was in distress. Um, I quickly scooped up this dog that was filthy and full of fleas and, and ticks. And I immediately went looking for a vet to take her to, to get her some sort of care and found out very quickly that there was no vet on this island. So I got on a speedboat and uh, took the speedboat to the next city, which was Rayong, um, which was about a 45 minute boat ride, got her to Rayong, went looking for a vet there, could not find a vet open. It was a Sunday. So I immediately then decided to head straight back to Bangkok with this little dog in my lap with, I had a driver and we drove three hours to get to Bangkok, um, found a vet in Bangkok. And when I got to the vet's office, finally, after waiting for a while, the vet called me in, looked at her and said, ah, killer, she's no good. She's never going to walk is were his words. And 
Now, to me, that was shocking. That was a very shocking thing for me to hear, again, from my Western culture. For him, it was like, that's their normal. Like, why are you going to take care of this dog that's, that's crippled? She's useless. And he said to me, I can kill her in the back, is what he said. <laughs> and I was like, what? And I said, no, I don't think so. I said, I'm going to take her home tonight and I'm going to, uh, I'll get a second opinion tomorrow is what I figured I would do. But I was going to take her home that night. And I was going to clean her up. I was going to feed her. I was going to give her all the things that I could possibly do to give her at least one good night. If I had to put her down the next day, then I knew that I had done at least something good, I guess is, is what I would say. And so I did all that and went to bed. And the next morning I woke up. Now, mind you, let me backtrack just for a second. While I was during, before I had found this dog, I was also still partying. Okay. I didn't give up doing drugs when I moved to Thailand. I was still doing them. In fact, I had switched over to crystal meth at that point because crystal meth, you could do crystal meth. And you know, I, when I discovered crystal meth, I learned that you didn't have to go to the bathroom every 20 minutes to do a bunk. So <laughs> it, it was a much more efficient way of staying high. And so that's what I was doing. And I was going out to clubs all night. And you know, that was just, it was part of the lifestyle I was living. That night that I took the dog home, I didn't go out. And I went out every night. I would go out every night. But that night, of course, I didn't go out. And the next morning I woke up uh, to see this little dog drag herself from the little bed I'd made for her to the patio to go outside to pee. And I watched her. I didn't do anything. And she went outside on the patio, peed, drug herself back to her little bed. And it was at that moment that I just realized, I just thought, you know what? For her, this is her normal. She doesn't know there's anything wrong with her. This is what she is. And so I took her to the vet and um, found another vet that morning. And that vet told me, he said, well, you know, she'll probably live maybe a year, maybe a year with her, with all the things that she has wrong with her. And I thought, you know what? I can do this. I can do this for a year. I thought, no big deal. But I also knew at that moment, and that was my epiphany. This was my epiphany from at least for one part of my life story was that it was at that moment I realized that she needed me more than I needed another bump of crystal meth. And it was at that day, that moment, that I put it down and I've never touched it again. So that little dog that came to me, didn't know, she didn't know, I didn't know, that she was going to save my life in many ways as I was saving her life. And she lived for 10 years. She lived for 10 years. But that little dog not only changed my perspective of everything, um, I now had something to do that was not about me. I had something that I could put myself into. And it's amazing when you have something else to focus on, how minuscule all those things that you thought were so important that you couldn't live without, like drugs, become, for me anyway, and I'm not saying this is for anybody else because I know people who have to go to AA or you know whatever 
uh, rehab programs that they went into and still go into um, to conquer those things. For me, it was automatic. It was just like, I'm done. I am done. So I don't know where else to go with that at the moment, but that was, uh, that was the beginning of the journey. And the journey kept going and going and things kept unfolding. And it all started to take place around this little creature that couldn't walk and how I started to look at the world in a very different capacity. And her teachings to me of how something that was discarded, she was discarded, she was not wanted, she was, I was told to get rid of her, to kill her, that she had so much life to live and so much to give. And in that process, I started to look at the world from a different perspective. And it eventually changed my, my work even. So I'll shut up for a second and let you ask, ask a question. No, that is, that's such an amazing story. Um, thank you. Thank you for just like being the person, like, because here's the thing. The all the experiences that you went through before that, you know, being very ego driven, um, always like trying to chase the next high, living that lifestyle, it was very important to live that lifestyle. So, I mean, in my opinion, because I used to like live that lifestyle, maybe not to that extent, but I was very involved in, in drugs and alcohol, very ego driven. Um, and it's important to have that contrast because when you I mean, it's, it's almost like it's, it's hard. I know some people grow up and they have, you know, parents who are, you know, very spiritually aware. They, they care about their physical, mental and spiritual health. And they, and they raise a child with really good values and whatnot. And maybe that child can avoid going through these experiences. But personally, I think that it's important to live that type of life so that you can have the perspective to realize that it's 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 not it it's just it's not it it's simply not it and without having that perspective it's almost like because here's the thing when you tell people this story and people are listening to this podcast it's and maybe they're involved in the same things that you are it's going to inspire them to realize that it's like that is not it and like there's there's other things that in this reality that are more important than just building up yourself. So I think it's, and that's kind of what you realize with this dog, right? It's like this dog has no ego. This dog like doesn't care about what it is. It's just living. And then that's just like what it's doing. Um, and it, that's the thing. Like dogs are pure consciousness. They don't have any ego at all. It, it's why, you know, it's why people just like look going into nature, like, looking at trees just being in nature they gain right. wisdom because nature itself doesn't have egos like we do i i'm not saying egos are you know like, egos are very important for us to survive it got us to this point that we could be in the civilization and create this all this beautiful art create the beautiful jewelry that you you were or I, i'm assuming you do you do you still are you still in the jewelry oh, yeah, industry yeah, yeah. and Quick i'll aside. i'll share that a little bit more about that but yes Yes, but 
we, we there's so much to learn from you know non-ego beings you know and i'm i'm really glad that you know you took care of that dog that you stuck with your gut and it sounds like that you know you've you've gained a lot of wisdom by living a life that has been very ego driven and has led you to become the amazing well you know i will say this though too it's like those things don't you know there some things switch automatically like it was easy for me to give up the drugs and the partying and all of that stuff that was a that was a no brainer for me um but i will tell you honestly um for me in the process while i was in thailand just finding samed i named her samed because that was the name of the island that I found her on. And it just seemed the most appropriate, coolest name. Um, so I thought, well, that would uh, just solicit people go, what? Samet? So her name was a great name, but uh, it brought a lot of, uh, it had a correlation to it for me. Um, but one day I was driving my motor scooter. Um, I, I was living in a town called Pattaya um, or Jamtin, which is about, I was keeping a residence in Bangkok as well as one in uh, Jamtin. And in Jamtin, it was my art space. It was my place where I was just kind of playing and in the art field, just playing, just dabbling in all different things, anything that wasn't jewelry, because <laughs> I did not want to do jewelry anymore again in my life after so many years of being in the industry. So I was just playing around with stuff. And one day, I had cement in a little basket on the handlebars of my motorbike and we were driving along and we came uh, as we pulled up to a stop sign there was a derelict building um and in asia or in in thailand especially um 20 years ago there was a collapse of the economy so there were a lot of these big high-rise buildings that were derelict that they never nobody ever had the money to finish so they were just crumbling basically and as i pulled up to the stop sign I looked down at some, I remember looking down at cement and it was almost like a little voice that said, stop, we need to go in there. And so I pulled over the scooter and I this derelict high rise was there and I pried a board open to get in. I was doing something that was probably illegal, um, but I pried a board and I went into this building's um, property. And as I was looking around, there were all these, you know, building materials, parts and pieces and rusted metal. And, and I remember being kind of fascinated by it. And I looked around for like a good 20 minutes or so. And then I was leaving. We, we crawled back to the fence. And as I was getting on the bike, it was the only way I can describe this, it was like, and maybe it's because the cement was with me, but it was like being in the SPCA or in the pound. I started hearing all these little voices that said, we are not ready to die. Now, I was like, it said, come back, come back, come back into the, into the property. So I went back to the property and the voices got louder. And this was just obviously all in my head. But I started really hearing, don't leave us. We're not done yet. And I started picking up little pieces of metal that were all around, rusted pieces of metal that were nothing and that maybe it was a screw and a bolt or whatever. And I started gathering them up. And I remember putting them in the little basket, going home. 
And the next day I had to go back. And the next day I had to go back. And I kept getting more and more of these items and they were speaking to me. And I started to make a realization and a correlation to these materials who were intended for a purpose. They either lived their purpose or, and they were now useless, but they were basically made out of the same things that we are. They're the elements. They're the elements. And they were dying. They were rusting away in a, in a, in a derelict building's property when they had so much more to give. And I started to look at these materials in a new, or materials in general, in a new context. And I would feel them. I could start to, I was starting to feel and get in touch and feeling energy. I started feeling energy. There's where my awakening started to happen. My awakening started to happen when I started to pay attention. I had been making beautiful jewelry for a long time. But to me, it was a pretty stone that needed to be set in some gold and it was an intrinsic value and somebody was going to pay me a lot of money to buy it. That was my only connection to it. Okay. All of a sudden, I started playing with these materials and I started creating not jewelry, just other things. And the joy started to happen. The joy started to come back into my life of letting my hands do the work. I was no longer controlling what I was doing. I was just letting it happen, letting the material speak through me. And I started making things. And one night, I was just in my studio apartment, my, or my, I had a, a, a townhome, and part of it I turned into my studio. And one night I decided to pull, I decided to pull an all-nighter put on a pot of coffee, and I just wanted to play. And at one point, I switched off. My brain switched off, and I don't remember what happened the rest of the night. All I know is the next morning when I kind of came out of that space, I looked at my table, and in front of me was truly one of the most beautiful necklaces that I had ever made in my life. And it was all made out of garbage. And it was stunning. And I remember thinking, Anthony, you know what? You're talented, but this is something else. This is something else that you're being guided to. And that started my new journey of what I was going to be as a designer. I didn't know it yet because it still took a couple of years for me to get there, but it was the beginning. There's a lot of uh, very fascinating things in what you just said. And it seems like from the time you left uh, the U.S. to go to Thailand, the universe was kind of giving you little hints and certain experiences that were starting to push you in this direction of being more spiritually aware. You had your friends who you met who talked to you about Buddhism and that kind of piqued your curiosity, didn't fully go down that route yet, but it was baking in the back of your mind, right? And then you met Samed and started taking care of this dog and that completely changed you, broke helped you break free from all of your addictions, showed you the importance of compassion and being uh, thoughtful of other beings and their well-being, not just your own status. And that was transformative. And then you had this experience with uh, those pieces of metal that you picked up from a you know, rundown building and you ended up creating beautiful art out of it. 
in, a, in, a, in some sort of flow state where it's almost like the universe was acting through you. You don't even remember the experience. So your ego was completely out of the way. So you're having all these, these various experiences and um, it's bringing you closer and closer to this. I guess at that point, maybe you, you already are kind of on this path of awakening, but it's, it's bringing you closer to um, a state of, I guess, um, spiritual alignment, I would say, right? Closer and closer, you're breaking free of addictions, you're engaging in better habits. And so there's a, there's a few different questions I want to ask, but I guess at, at this point, is this where, you know, things start to kind of shift on a more tangible level and you make, you know, you change your jewelry business or, or what happens from that point on? Um, you know, one other thing happened when I was in, in Asia that really was an impactful thing was um, after I rescued Samet and um, in Asia, you know, they have the, the dog meat trade. <clears throat> so there is a, uh, uh, they, they will come from Cambodia or from um, uh, Vietnam, and they will round up the soy dogs, and they will gather them up, and they will they will have the, the the locals, the local Thai people, especially in depressed communities, round up the soy dogs, and they will trade them for a bucket or or a plastic dish or whatever for a dog, and they will take those dogs and they'll transport them across the border, and they go into the dog meat trade, and they basically just get slaughtered. Um, for food. And Samet would have ended up as one of those dogs because obviously she was helpless. Well, <clears throat> I knew this, but I hadn't connected the dots yet until one day I was in Bangkok. And I and by this point, I have Samet and she's now in a baby trolley because she can't walk. So I'm pushing her around in a baby trolley. And one day I'm at lunch at a restaurant, an outside restaurant where Samet is next to me in the in the trolley. And I'm there with a couple of Thai friends and we're having a conversation and I'm talking to them about how horrible it is that this, the dog meat trade, and I'm going off on this tirade about how horrible this is. And one of my friends said to me, she said, what are you eating? So what do you mean? What am I eating? And she said, what's on your plate? And I'm like a steak. And she was like, so what gives you some sort of moral right to tell other people in other countries that their culture is wrong? That is their culture. But yet you're doing the same thing in America, but you happen to be doing it to cows and pigs and chickens. And I was like, how dare you? I mean, I didn't say that out loud, but I thought, what the fuck are you talking about? But it planted a seed. And that seed was one of the biggest seeds that was ever planted in me. I didn't know what a big impact that was going to have till a few years down the road. But that seed that she planted by questioning my philosophy as I was going off on this tirade, and here I was doing exactly the same thing. I didn't know that that was going to be such a huge impact in my life down the road. So uh, back to the question that you had, was that, was Thailand the beginning of uh, the spiritual journey? I think that all of these little things, like you said, started to happen. They started to formulate. They started to build this. It broke down everything that I believed in. All these experiences were now like a like a ball, like a ball that was rolling on fire, that was simmering. It was a low flame, but it was rolling, it was moving. 
but I was not still listening. Yes, I was doing this new new creative venture. And I remember at one point contacting Anna Winter at Vogue. And I said to her, um, because, because I had a relationship with her, I said, I'm making this new jewelry line and I want it to be something that's never been done before. And I want it to be Vogue worthy. And she said, well, put a collection together. And so that's what I started doing. I spent uh, the next couple of years in Thailand working on a jewelry collection that was based upon discarded materials. But I wanted to create something that didn't look like discarded materials. I didn't want anybody to look at it and go, oh, that's recycled. I wanted it to be, I wanted it to be Vogue worthy. So I had a mission. I had a mission in the process as I was do, going through my experiences there. And one day I started to miss being famous. And that was my ego speaking, my ego. And again, I didn't know this at the time, but I was like, God, I miss that. I miss, I started, you know how it is? Like you start to forget the bad. You just start remembering the good. Like you look at past relationships and, and you go, oh, it wasn't so bad. And so you end, go, end up going back with that person. And then you're like, holy shit. Now I know why I was, I got out of this relationship, but you don't see that at the moment. And that's where I was. I'd stepped away from the industry for several years and I started to miss it. I started to miss the accolades. I started to miss being told how amazing I was. I started to miss the being treated like a superstar. I was down with just this normal person and I was jealous. It was, I was jealous that my ex-partner was now living the life that we had created, but he was now living it just by himself. And so I decided that it was time for me to come back to the United States because I wanted it back. I wanted it back so badly. So that's, that's where the journey takes another layer, another step. And you can ask me a question if you want to. And I know I'm sidelining at times, but if you want to ask me a question, please do. So one quick question I did have before you continue um, going along this linear story is I, I know you mentioned or it was mentioned in the article that sometimes when you're going through the walking your dog, you know, um, on, in the stroller in the States, you've received some negative feedback or comments from people. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit more and how you navigate those interactions? Yeah, boy, that's a that's a that's a good one, because there's a you to you talk about a growing process and learning and. Um, I didn't realize, you know, living in Asia was one thing and there were, there, I'm sure there was a lot of negativity uh, geared towards me while I was living in Thailand, but I didn't speak the language, so I didn't hear it. But when I got back to the States, um, it was like immediate, it was immediate. And for me, it was now my normal. My normal was to put cement in her trolley and to take her out and about, and that was just my normal. And I remember I moved to Potomac, Maryland, and I started doing the same thing. And people were not nice. They were not nice. They were, and it was almost like they, it's not like that they were saying anything like verbally out loud to me in a very accusational way. It was mumbling under their breath. It was always like, can you believe that? Can you believe that guy? That's, that's ridiculous. Like there would be that kind of 
uh, thing going on. And um, I remember getting very angry. I remember being angry all the time. I was angry every time I took Samet out for her for her trolley, which was every day. Um, I was angry, and I started getting confrontational with people. I started being like, "What's what's wrong with you?" And I started having arguments. And and I <laughs> I remember one of these days I was in that space of being so angry that somebody had said something negative about Samed, and I looked down as she's in her trolley, and she turned her head up and looked at me. She could have cared less. (laughs) She could have cared less. She didn't know what they were saying and she couldn't care what they were saying. She was on a trolley, on her trolley ride, right? And I remember that day saying to myself, when she looked at me, I remember saying, you can stay in this space, Anthony, of being angry, or you can take this opportunity and bring joy. And I wanted to learn from Samet how she, what she was teaching me. She was teaching me something here that I could stay in that space and, and carry all this or I could open up my heart. I could open up my heart and I could allow new things in by not being confrontational, but confronting. So from that point on, every single time that somebody would do something or say something negative, I would stop, I would gain my composure because my immediate thought would be to be angry. I would calm myself down and I would turn around and I would go to this person and I would say, hi, my name is Anthony and I'd like you to meet my dog, Samet. Samet is handicapped and I just happen to be her caregiver. And those two little sentences or three little sentences started to change the world, my world and the world that we were involved in. And um, I realized if I took the time to educate that that would compound itself, it would multiply. The story would be, would grow and it would be shared. And that her life, her life had more meaning than just being a little handicapped dog in a trolley, that she could have an impact out there. And that became a part of my mission as well was to share her story. Did I yeah, answer the question? Yes, definitely. No, you okay. definitely answered it. Um, it sounds like you learned a lot too there from from in terms of managing your emotions, right? And you feel this anger come up, you feel this resentment comes up. And instead of letting that take over and be your reaction, you create space between that stimulants and your response. And you try to find a way to be more compassionate and proactive in your approach towards handling the negative feedback and criticism that other people were giving you. Um, so it seems like you learned a lesson there as well. Um, I, I also just, I want to definitely go back to the to the story you were telling. So, you know, after this experience, you come back to the States, you're having these interactions, you're, you know, walking your dog and all this. And so I, I believe you mentioned on our call that you had some experiences uh, with visiting the various spiritual vortexes. I think Sedona, Arizona was one of them, if I'm not mistaken. Is this around that same time or was that later on? No, 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 no. This, uh, this happened much later. That's a, that's a much, that's a much more recent journey um, that I started to go to, to take on unexpectedly, but uh, uh, yeah, we can go there if you want. You can, if you wanted me to jump 
forward, I could do that. Is that where you want me to go? If there, if, if there are really important pieces of the journey that happened as you came back and, you know, that were well, pivotal to your experience, yeah. I would definitely love to hear about that as well. Okay. Let's, let's, I'll, I'll, I'll say, so, so back to that, that uh, moving back to the States um, and missing being famous, I decided that that's what I wanted to do again. I wanted to go back into that world. Um, I knew I had a name. I knew that I had the ability to do kind of, even though it had been five years, I still had the name recognition. Um, and that was because I'd won what's the, the Council of Fashion Designers of America Award, which is basically like winning the Oscar. So you do that, you become a part of history, and your name is always going to be synonymous with being one of the leaders in the world of design, basically. So I got on the phone, and in the, in the world of that world, you had, at that time, you had three options. You had uh, Neiman Marcus, you had Saks Fifth Avenue, or you had Barney's. And if you were a designer in that world to be at the top of the game, you have to be in one of those stores. That's just the protocol of the business at that time. So I got on the phone with Neiman Marcus, I got on the phone with Saks, I got on the phone with Barney's, and I started to field my positioning, started to see what my positioning was. And I learned very quickly that my ex-partner, he was very dug deep into Barney's. Um, I learned that Neiman Marcus was no longer buying their the product. They only wanted you to do it on consignment, so it was all on your dime. And so that left Saks Fifth Avenue. And so I called Saks and I said, look, I said, this is, I got a hold of the buyer, said, this is Anthony Camargo. She said, are you back in business? And I said, yes. And she said, can you come to New York tomorrow? And I was in DC, obviously. I said, yeah, I can be there tomorrow. I got on a train, went to New York. And that next day I was picked up by Saks Fifth Avenue in a second. And I was now back in the game. At the top of the at the top of the game, and when I say the top of the game, that's where the ego driven the ego starts to kick in because in that world, to be one of the top designers in the world, you have to have re you have to have uh, real estate basically in one of those three department stores, right? So Saks Fifth Avenue offered me real estate in Manhattan, Beverly Hills, and D.C. Three major stores. And I was getting nine linear uh, case feet in each store. And that's a lot of value, right? So I jumped in. I went in full force. And then I got an agent. I got, a, I got an agent because, and interestingly enough, it was Samed that ended up getting me an agent to get a TV show. So I was, I was in a little town called Lewis, Delaware, on a, on a working holiday with one of my assistants. And I was pushing cement down the street in this little town. And this big black SUV pulls up and stops. And it the windows don't come down. They're all black. They just stop. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And after 30 seconds, I move on. And later on that night, my assistant said to me, she said, Oh, by the way, we're meeting some people for dinner. It's my friend Rebecca and her husband. Um, she's from New York and she's a producer. Whatever, didn't put two and two together. We went over there that evening. And as I walked in the front door, the woman said, oh my God, you're the guy that was pushing the dog and the trolley on the street today. And I said, yeah. And she said, oh, she said, 
wait a minute. She said, you need a television show. They said, and, and I was probably wearing a cowboy hat and cargo shorts and probably no shirt and combat boots, probably like some crazy outfit or whatever. So I looked like a caricature, right? That is my normal anyway. Next thing I know, the ball starts spinning and now I have a show on Bravo uh, about my life. I've got Saks Fifth Avenue. I've got the agents. I've got the publicists. I've got all the things going on. I'm starting to travel and doing the parties and doing all of that stuff that you do to play that game. And I was living it. I was thinking, oh my God, I am, I am back. I am back. And here's the big change that happened. This, was, this is when it really hit before we get into the spirituality part. I was in New York and we were filming promos for the, uh, for the television show. And we were filming for two days at the Gansevoort Hotel, um, all the promos and interviews, et cetera, that I was going to need to do for this show. My ex-employee who was in, who lived in Austin, but was from New York while she lived in Austin while she worked for me, her job during the years of Anthony Knack jewelry was to travel with me. And part of her job was to secure cocaine for me so that whenever I had to go somewhere, she would walk in every morning, give me a vial of cocaine, and I would be on. And I would go do my song and dance, and everybody was happy. Well, she found out I was in New York, and I was filming this promo, promo thing for the television show. And she showed up on the set at the hotel. And it was so great to see her. I was like, oh, my God, it's so great to see you. And she said, I have a gift for you. She said, hold out your hand. Put out my hand, and she slipped a vial of cocaine in my hand. Because that's what she knew. That was her job. She had been doing that job for years. She gave me a vial of cocaine and my head went on fire. I was so excited. I hadn't done it in years. But I knew if I did cocaine right now, I was going to be in control. Everything was going to be great. And I excused myself from the set. I ran to the bathroom to open up that vial of cocaine. And there was a ledge in the, in, the, in the bathroom, the stainless steel ledge. And I emptied out nice big fat line. I got my credit card out and I lined it up. I got my bill out and I rolled it up. And I was going down to do the big and I saw myself in the mirror. And I saw that guy and I scooped it all into the toilet. I didn't do it. I skipped it on the toilet and I walked out. I walked out on the set and I said, I can't do this, you guys. And I left. I quit. I quit again. I quit again. Now talk about irresponsible. I ended up getting sued for millions of dollars. I left everybody in the lurch. But I knew at that moment, I knew at that moment that I was not ready. I was not ready. And if I had taken the choice to stay in there, that it was still too available and ready, and I was too willing to go right back down the path that I had been on for years that I had escaped from. And so I left. I left and I walked away from everything. I left it all. I left it all. And I left the industry again 
and I actually lost my name. I lost my name. I was sued and I lost my name from, I was sued by my business partner. Um, and I couldn't design. I could no longer design. I couldn't use my name. I couldn't design for, for two years. It was a non-compete. <clears throat> um, my name was still, I was in, still in Sex Fifth Avenue. <clears throat> my name was in the case line. But I had nothing to do with it. I had nothing to do with me. And when you lose your name as a designer, what are you? I didn't know who the fuck I was anymore. I literally didn't know what to do. I couldn't do, my hands were tied. I could not be a designer. And that is when <clears throat> the new door opened again. Another door opened. And that door opened because I went to the gym. I, I would go to the gym in Potomac, Maryland, and I was had nothing else to do but go to the gym every morning at 5 a.m. And one day the manager, this who's now my friend, she actually lives here in Texas now. One day she said to me, she said, you're the only person that comes here at five o'clock in the morning. I have to be here to open up the door for you and nobody else gets here till like six o'clock. She said, here, here are the keys. You let yourself in. <laughs> She said, I don't have to, that I don't have to be here in the morning. I was like, okay, great. And I said, what about my dog? She said, you can bring Samet and put her behind the camera. That's fine. I thought, oh my God, that's great. This is perfect. So I started doing that. And after about a month of that, she said to me, she said, God, everybody loves you. Everybody loves you so much. She goes, would you just work here? I was like, well, I have nothing else to do. She said, I know you have nothing else to do. She said, so you can do the front desk. And so that's what I did. And I had, I needed to make money. And now I had a job. I could bring Samet in. She could be there behind the counter. And it was a great opportunity for me to do something different. And in the process, this is where the process started to change. After about another month, this woman, my friend, Sean, she said, why don't you become a personal trainer? She said, these women love you and they all know you. They know you as this famous jewelry designer. So they're all excited to come in and see you. She goes, become a trainer. So I did. I studied. I got my National Academy of Sports Medicine licensing. And after eight months of doing, it took me a long time to study to get it because at 50 years, 54 years old, it's not that easy to study anymore. Um, but I got my certification. And I became the top trainer at that gym. And I learned something. What I learned was that that guy who had been decorating women for so long, I had been putting accessories on them to make them feel good. I had it down. I was a fucking drug dealer, basically. I was supplying women with a vehicle to feel good about themselves. If they had the money to spend, I could supply them just like the cocaine dealer supplied me with cocaine. She needed a pair of earrings because she felt like shit about herself. So she would go to Neiman Marcus or Saks or Barney's and she would drop $5,000 for a pair of earrings and she would put them on and she felt amazing. And the next morning she would wake up and she'd look in the mirror and she didn't feel amazing. She was not healthy. She was overweight. But she could go decorate herself and she could find somebody like me to put her into another $5,000 pair of earrings. And I was getting paid. She was getting fed. And nobody was winning. 
Nobody was winning. And that's when I decided I wanted to teach women how to be beautiful by taking care of themselves. And that became my new goal in what I was doing, <clears throat> which eventually led to jewelry again. Because after two years, I got my name back. And one day I was training one of my female clients. And in Thailand, as I was picking up all those parts and pieces of metal, there was one bag of metal pieces that I brought back with me from Thailand. And they were all the same little round pieces of metal. I didn't know what they were, but I just thought they were cool. Out of all the things that I brought back with me from Thailand, that was the one thing that I brought back that was the stuff that I collected. As I'm training this woman on the tricep press machine, the machine is going down and she says to me, and I'm not making this up, this really happened. She says, I wish you could design me a bracelet that I could wear to the gym every day and it wouldn't get damaged. And as she said that, the tricep press machine came down and I looked at the top of where the pole connected to the weights and you know what was there? That little round piece of metal. <laughs> it was a part of the machinery that held it together. It was an O-ring, a retaining ring. And I remember at that moment going, holy fuck, I have about a thousand of those things in my, in my, in my, uh, packed away. And I went home that day and I pulled them out and I spent the next six months trying to figure out how to make that retain ring into a piece of jewelry. So it all came full circle. It all came full circle that I went to Asia, I left it all behind, I left the jewelry industry, I rediscovered this new uh, meaning in life, I discovered this new perspective of how to make things, how to make how, that um, things that were discarded have value. Here I lose my name, become a personal trainer, and then that day happens. And that became the new catalyst. And if you look at my work today, you will see that retaining ring in every single piece of jewelry that I make. So that is that is a wow. crazy story. What a story. That is Yeah, crazy. so when you look at my jewelry today and I just for example, so this is the bracelet. This is the bracelet that I made for her, which is now part of everything that I do, and you can see that those are the retaining rings that hold the stone, but wait, now I'm going to show you something else. This is an earring. Wow, that is beautiful. And what's there? Can you see that? There's the ring inside, I think. I see the ring in there. Can you see the retaining ring? Yeah. That retaining is. ring is surrounding the stone and, and holds. It's the basis. Now, I choose this piece of jewelry, this, this element, because there's something beautiful about the spirituality. And this is where this whole other thing starts to happen. What I learned was that there's something beautiful about that particular ring because it's, a, it's an O, it's shape, but it's open on one end. And there's something about flow of energy. And this is why it's really important for me to use that in my work today. There's a flow of energy that 
it's not surrounded. It doesn't lose its ability to come and go. So that retaining ring becomes a very important part of what I do today as a jeweler. Um, and that's where that is today. That's the jewelry that I do today. I just want to say thank you so much for sharing this story. It's I, I've already learned a lot from you just by hearing about the story that I that I know I'm going to be able to apply to my own life. It's just it's really cool to see how uh, you know your 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 previous purpose in life was more or less supplying women with external validation where and then it completely went 180 into you giving them internal validation so that they can you know feel better about themselves in a more healthy way versus the way that it was before which was very materialistic right. I, I think that coming full circle is awesome um and yeah the last thing i'm gonna say just in general is that you know human beings we we really like to think that you know we're the smartest thing out there that we that we know everything that we have all the answers look at us we made civilization look at us we got space but then we get wrapped up in things that really don't matter and we create more problems that we solve and it's 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 funny because every single time that you've like you've learned something you've you've just glimpsed into the eyes of this beautiful being your dog Samed who literally has no idea what's going on it's just living it's just being and from that you extract the most wisdom from another being that has less like mental capacity that you do that is just that is just purely innocent and living its life it's just it's it's amazing so yeah. thank you thank you um and so back to your question uh santiago is um the vortex Yes. Did you want to so, go there? Yes. So it sounds like you've had a lot of ups and downs and a lot of synchronicities, it sounds like, in your life that the universe is kind of just trying to continue to line things up for you, giving you challenges. And then you kind of had to break your ego down again a second time and then coming back to the spiritual path. So it's almost like it's kind of nudging you again to get back on this kind of spiritual path because you kind of fall off a little bit. It happens. You know, our egos get in the way and whatnot. And so before we wrap things up, I definitely want to learn about your experiences at these vortexes. You said you had some profound experiences. Please tell us about that. Yeah, so just really quickly. So the, the jewelry the jewelry led to um, my meeting a woman in, in uh, excuse me, Bethesda, Maryland, um, through another woman who was a jewelry client. She bought this woman a necklace for Christmas. Uh, this is now four years ago, four Christmas, Christmases ago. She bought her friend this necklace. and. For some reason, I could not get the necklace to her. She wanted it to be, to be she wanted to meet somewhere <clears throat> for me to drop it off to her or whatever. And every time there was a meeting scheduled, she would always cancel. Now, I knew her address and she lived on the most expensive street in Bethesda, Maryland, right? So I thought, oh God, this is so not one of my clients. Why am I having to go? Get, try to figure out how to get this woman this piece of jewelry. She's not going to like it. She's not. It's not her style. She's very fancy. I don't do fancy jewelry anymore. I just was like, this is a no win. This went on for three months, me trying to connect with her. Finally, one day, the friend who bought the necklace called me and said, Lori can meet you today at Starbucks. I said, great, I'll be there. Picked a time. 
I'm driving there to go meet with her. I get a call from her. She says, sorry, can't meet with you. You need to come to my house. I thought, oh, shit. Now I've got to go to this fancy address to this fancy woman who's not going to get me and deliver this piece of jewelry that she's not going to like. So I go and I have this vision in my head of this woman I'm going to meet and I'm seeing Chanel suit and two-tone shoes and every time she canceled on me it was always about her son that needed to do this and that. I'm thinking she's got this spoiled kid who is just like, this is a nightmare. Everything that I don't want to be in my life. Everything I don't want in my life. So I go. I get to the address. I get let in by the French butler who takes me upstairs into the grand foyer of this big house. He says, can you, he goes, you need to wait here. And I'm waiting there and I'm looking around at all this exquisite, expensive art all over the walls. And I'm there two or three minutes and I hear this voice at the top of the stairs at the foyer that says, oh, you must be Anthony. And I'm thinking, I've got to face this woman that I don't want to face. And I turn around and I look up and there's a woman standing up there who is like 60 years old. She is in thigh high leather boots, jeans, hair down, long hair. She's got all this funky jewelry on and she is just fabulous. Just so cool. Not what I was expecting at all. She gl glides down the stairs. She comes and puts her arms around me and she says to me, she says, tell me everything. <laughs> I was like, what? She goes, tell me everything. I said, from when? She said, from the beginning. And she took my hand and she took me into her sitting room and we sat down and for the next eight hours, we talked. This woman that I did not want to meet. And at the end of eight hours, it was now seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night. She said, oh my God. She goes, you probably need to go. I said, yeah. She goes, she goes but I didn't look at the necklace. And I said, well, I, she goes, you'll have to come back tomorrow. So I came back the next day. Same thing. We talked and we talked and we talked. And she said something to me. She said, you know, she said, I don't like just another piece of pretty jewelry. She said, what is it about your jewelry that is special? And I said, I don't know. And she said, I'll tell you. She said, it's your energy. She said, your energy is flowing through each piece of jewelry. And that's what makes it special. And she opened up the door for me, this woman, to start looking at gemstones and crystals <clears throat> with a new perspective that I didn't know before. I didn't know about energy of stone. I didn't know about any of that. I didn't care about any of, any of that. It was never on my priority. And she started to, to share with me. And she took me around her house and she had crystals all over the place. There were beautiful crystals, blah, blah, blah. The woman is now my best friend. Um, she is, uh, she's amazing. She's an inventor. She's a, a, an art collector. She's a film producer. She's done many, many different things in her life. She has a son. And that son that I thought was really the spoiled rotten kid that she was having to hover over, he has autism. He's 32 years old. He's never spoken a word in his life. He's my godson now. He's now my godson. And Lenny has opened up a new door for me. Lenny 
reached over four years ago, the first time I met him, grabbed my hand, and I felt a charge of electricity go through me that I had never felt before. And I knew at that moment, he knew at that moment, as he looked in my eyes, that this was going to be a ride. And that ride has never stopped since that moment. Through Lenny and Lori, I started to experience things that I'd never experienced before. Lenny opened up a channel of communication to where today I am now being able to telepathically, or he telepathically communicates with me. I'm learning how to telepathically commu communicate with him through somebody that I'm working with, that we're working with as a family, um, Lori, myself, and I. But through Lori, we decided a year ago, it was a year ago last week, to go on holiday to Tulum, Mexico. And we went down there because there is a man by the name of Mas Sajide, and you can look him up. He has a podcast that he does. Um, he is uh, a leader in exponential intelligence. He's a friend of Lori's. And he found out through Lori that I started, that I have this ability to feel energy through stones. I now, or have been for the past couple of years, been able to feel and read trauma. I can pick up a stone and I can feel trauma. And I know when they need to rest. I know when they need to go into a dark space. And I buy them because of that. And I put them away and I let them tell me when they're ready to be made into something. They've lived a very traumatic experience to get to this place where they're now being forced to be made into a piece of jewelry. And some of them aren't ready. So I've started to learn this. Masajide wanted to record me for a podcast in Tulum. So that's why we all went down there to do this podcast recording of me talking about my ability to read energy through stones. While I was there, while we were there for 10 days, we went to all the architectural ruins, the Mayan ruins. We were traveling to all of them. No big deal. It was just a, a, being a tourist. <clears throat> and the day that we were filming, we decided that we were going to film at the Tulum architectural ruins. and. I had no idea. I was just going to go talk about my ability to this idea that I can read stones, whatever. And we arrived at the Tulum Architectural Ruins, and this is when my world and my life changed again. Um, the moment that I entered into that space, I started receiving, and I didn't know what it was at the time, I started receiving information. I just started receiving tons of information. Um, about the space, about the place. I told everybody, the film crew, everybody, I said, we have to go to this certain wall to film because that's where the energy is. And I told them, I kind of switched and went into another place because um, I don't remember a lot of it. A lot of, a lot of it I only know because it was filmed. Um, but I started to tell everybody what happened here at this place, that there was a... Uh, there were bodies under this wall, and <clears throat> I could, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I was being transported to another level, another place, and <clears throat> this went on for about three hours. I was 
on my hands and knees. I was crying. I was just all this information was coming at me. It was really intense. We left that day. Um, and I remember just being exhausted. And the next morning I said to Lori, um, I said, we need to go back. And um, I said, but no film crew. I don't want anybody else around. I just need to go. And I said, just me and you. And I said, and you can't talk to me the entire time we're there because I don't need any of your input. I don't want your thought process. I just need to feel what's going on here, but I'm compelled to be there. And when we went back the next day, this is when I started to see the, the uh, feel the vortexes and to see the ley lines. And I could see the, um, you know, it's really hard to explain this stuff in a humanistic form, but it was another dimension. It was other, another dimension. I knew why I was there. I knew that I had been there before. Not that I'd lived this past life, but it was from another place and time. Anyway. And that's a whole other big conversation. Uh, it was life-changing. I didn't know what it was going to be at the time. Um, but Lori, because she has the ability um, to, she's very financially independent, very wealthy. Um, she said, look, you're receiving something that I wish I could receive. I've spent years, she spent years trying to develop these abilities and never has. And now all of a sudden it was coming to me organically. She said, look, we need to travel to the 12 places around the world where the ley lines are and the vortexes are created. So I was like, okay, but you know what? I have no expectation. I don't know if this is gonna happen again until we went to Egypt. And in Egypt, what happened to me in Tulum, let's magnify that by about a thousand times um, from a it's called the Kundalini Awakening. Are you familiar with that? So that's what that's what everybody else is calling it. I'm not calling it that because I don't like to put that terminology on something, and that's still a way to describe it in a humanistic form. And this is so far removed from that for me, it is. Um, but Egypt was another huge download um, where I actually... Well, I'm not gonna I can't I'm not gonna go into it. It's just too too intense. But basically, um life-changing. And through that experience, that was about six months ago, Egypt was. Three months ago, two months ago, we decided to go to Mount Shasta. Uh this year we have uh Angerwatt, we have um uh um Stonehenge. We have uh, Turkey. These are some of the places where the vortexes are to go travel to. But, the, but a couple of months ago, we went to Mount Shasta. Again, I had no expectations. And again, something m magical happened. And this is where Lenny, Lenny, the autistic son who's never spoken, started to communicate with me and started to give me information, and I'm now learning how to communicate with him. So that's ethereal in many respects, and I know that that's a very different ballgame to go into, but I will tell you that my whole existence has changed. This last year has been one of the most difficult years I've ever experienced. Um, 
because of all of this that's coming, it's exhausting. It's really exhausting. But I was looking at looking at it as a detriment, as something that I didn't want, until one day it was Lori who said to me, because I said, look, I don't want this anymore. I don't want to go on another trip. I don't want another download. It's, this is really hard for me. And she said to me, she said, you need to stop looking at this as, as, a, as, a, as something negative, but as, as a gift. And I said, yeah, you can tell me that all day, all, all day long. She put it in these words. She said, if I were to give you a beautiful house, and I gave you the keys, and I said, this house is yours. And you could go up to that house, and you could stand outside, and you could look at it and go, mm, no, I'm not going to go in. If I open up the door, then I'm going to have to pay the electrical bill. I'm going to have to clean it. I'm going to have to take on the responsibilities of all that. And that's too hard. She said, you're doing the same thing with this gift that's being given to you. So that's where I am today. It's another level. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Yeah, the vortex is, is a very interesting um, topic that I, I learned about a few years ago, and I've been feeling called myself to go to Sedona, Arizona the last couple of years. It keeps popping up in my mind. I just haven't taken the time to go out and do it, but I'll have to do that sometime. And I have a couple, two final questions for you. But before I do that, I just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge you, Anthony, for your compassion that you've shown at different stages of your life, especially with uh, Samed and taking care of that dog when you didn't have to. You could have just left it there in the street, but you decided to take on the responsibility of caring for it, which is a big, uh, a big um, show of compassion and, and empathy. And also for your for your courage that you've shown of embracing the unknown and um, taking all of these different paths in life and experiencing a lot of the challenges that come with the unknown of this spiritual journey of going to Thailand, of visiting these vortexes and experiencing these very um, intense downloads and continuing to to go deeper and deeper into it, despite uh, the fear that you may, the fear and the difficulties <laughs> that you may be experiencing. So I just wanted to acknowledge you for that uh, before I ask the final two questions. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, so thank you. I appreciate that. I, I, I just want to say just also, Thank you, Anthony. Thank you for being you. Thank you for going through all these experiences, going through all of this adversity and sharing it with, with people and with us. And I know that you're just going to continue to be as inspiring as you are. And you're going to help other people realize that, you know, in order that n nothing worth having is easy. Like ha having, having this, this slew of experiences and having gone through everything that you went through, um, you probably look back and you you were just like, I wouldn't change it out for the world because like it created a very difficult path that has made everything that has culminated up to this point very worth it. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Thank you both. So if people want to follow you or learn more about your work, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, you know, I just do, <laughs> I just do Facebook and I just do Instagram. Um, I have found that um, in what I do today, that because I am in a constant state of discovery, that the traditional way of doing business via websites is not for me today. Selling to stores is not for me. I simply do what I do. I let my hands do what they're supposed to do. I let the gemstones and the materials speak 
through me, through my hands. I feel, I feel honored that they're allowing me to do that. So I post what I make and I do business that way today. Great. And anyone who's curious and learning more about Anthony, his uh, socials will be included in today's show notes. And the final question I had for you today is if you had one piece of advice to give people who are seeking to heal and grow on their spiritual journey, what would it be? The best piece of advice that I could give is um, when you make room in your heart by letting go of things that are negative and impact you negative, that could be um, a relationship, it could be a job, it could be anything that you do. For me, it was veganism. Um, for me, that was my big catalyst. That was life-changing for me because when I decided to become vegan, it was a no-brainer simply for this fact. If I stopped putting negativity in my body, if I stopped putting pain and suffering in my body by what other beings were going through to supply me, with that 15 minutes of pleasure so that I could consume that flesh. If I let that go, I would have so much more room in my heart for love and compassion and joy and teaching and healing if I let the negativity go. So that's, and I'm not saying that everybody should go and be vegan. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, for me, that was what worked for me. I'm saying when you get rid of the negative things that are drawing you down, it is amazing. It's very simple, basically. If you, if, and I know, again, I say this in just a very casual way, but when you open up space in your heart and in your mind, it is amazing what you can fill it with. And that's what I will leave it with. Beautiful message. Thank you so much, Anthony, for joining us today. Uh, I hope your message inspires people to improve their lives. And thank you so much. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure, an honor, actually, for me to be able to do this and to share. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Chasing Presence podcast. If you enjoyed it, please spread the word by telling your family and friends and by sharing it on social media. You can also show us your support by leaving a review. Also, if you'd like to get in touch with us, our contact information is in the show notes. Please send us a message as we'd love to hear from you and get your feedback. As always, thanks again for listening. Stay present and have a great day.